GBGBML uh, with friends and comrades in the audience and joined by an audience online. And it's that that we've been waiting to sort out. So thanks again for your patience. Um, we've got two presentations today. We're going to stream this one and then we will at 2.30 as planned have a second presentation. That second presentation uh, is going to be delivered by myself and that will be on the cost of living crisis, something that we're all facing at the moment. But it's something which, um, though it was a phenomenon on its own, is very much linked with the topic that we're going to be discussing first and will be presented by Jyoti Bra, Deputy Leader of the Workers' Party and one of our, our leaders of the CPGBML as well. So we're delighted to have Jyoti with us. She has written a book in the past called The Drive to War with Russia and China. I myself, when I um, did a, a show with George Galloway on his uh, programme Kalima Horror at the end of the year, predicted really, uh, and it wasn't a prediction that's come out of the blue, there's nothing like a, a Nostradamus-like in the prediction, that this was going to be a year of increasing shift in the global economic power, global economic and military uh, dynamic of the world, that we would see um, really consolidating processes that we've already been seeing of the rise of China, the rise of Russia, the relative decline of US imperialism, the Western-led coalition. And really all of that has come to a head around a particular conflict which perhaps we didn't predict. A, a conflict that which we've been following since 2014, which we hadn't predicted fully the way in which it would escalate and the manner in which it has escalated. Uh, and the propaganda and the levels of propaganda that have gone with, of course, the war uh, in Ukraine. I myself was pulled up at work um, to say that my Twitter feed was being investigated for its um, messages on Ukraine. Ultimately, there was nothing that came of it. But there's tremendous media pressure. There's tremendous pressure through our uh, institutions. When you go to Sainsbury's, you've probably been asked to donate to the war in Ukraine. When you go to the petrol station, likewise. At your school, you may, if you're going to nursery school, you may have had your children asked to write an essay about our sympathy for the people of the Ukraine. Uh, or you may have um, uh, had a similar thing at schools, fundraising. I've had fundraising messages, uh, interesting organisation called Sunflowers for Peace, are raising money for helmets and arms and flak jackets for the Ukrainian military. All of this currently is being disguised as Russia's war on Ukraine. Joti is going to give us more profound insight into who really are the movers behind this conflict. We very much do feel sympathy for the people of Ukraine and the people of the world languishing under the current socio-economic order. But simple sympathy alone is not enough. We have to understand the causes of the conflict if we're going to fight and, and stop war in general and this war in particular. And more importantly, we need to know that the real agents of this war as so many wars that we've seen before, the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war, the Libyan war, are in fact part of a broad campaign for a financial elite to dominate the world's resources. So Jyoti is going to give us a bit of the history, the background. She's not alone, actually, interestingly, in giving, giving this history and background. You can even find impeccable spokesmen of imperialism, such as John Mearsheimer, it's worth having a look at his presentation on the Ukraine war, uh, and, and there are others but who will tell you, you know, the broad historical outlines, which are so divorced from the media propaganda, hyperbole and hype, which is so overwhelming um, as heaven from earth. But Joseph is going to add to that and give us also a Marxist understanding of, you know, the causes of war in general and how that relates to our tasks as workers in Britain 
fighting for better living conditions and fighting for a world that is peaceful and just. So I hope you'll say that what I've said a lot, I've said nothing that's really going to affect your presentation. I'm going to go and we'll, we'll refocus on you. I'll just give you the mic, if I may. Forgive us for that. Thank you. Thanks very much, Ranjit. Well, I have to make a, a small equivocation um, because um, obviously um, comrades here know and maybe a few of the viewers uh, I have talked a lot in the past about the general drive to war against Russia and China and the causes of war and the way we oppose war in general, imperialist war in general. And, and um, uh, I'm not going to focus on that particularly today. Today, uh, my focus really is on Ukraine in particular, the background to Ukraine. Uh, because, you know, if you live in the West, trying to separate fact from fiction in relation to Russia and Ukraine right now really can seem like a Herculean task. Um, and that's because the all-important context for the situation, all the vital truths that are needed to make sense of what we're looking at, are being disappeared. They have been, for decades, disappeared by our media, but they continue to be, and at a, uh, a quite unprecedented uh, level. And it's precisely because context is the most important tool for understanding the situation in Ukraine that the disappearing of context is the chief weapon of the psychological operation that's being perpetrated against their own people by the Western imperialist states. And to some extent, this cycle of operation is being successful. To the extent that it's successful, the imperialists are storing up serious trouble for themselves. Because a day is going to come, and I don't think it's that far distant, because the Russians are busy collecting evidence of all the Ukraines that the Western Stooges have been committing in Ukraine. And there are going to be trials, and the trials' evidence will be made public. And there's going to come a point where this information starts to filter through to the people, the workers in the West. Even some of the chattering classes in the West will start to be exposed to this information, and I think the anger we're going to see amongst British people, people in the West in general, when they realise the extent to which they've been manipulated and barefacedly lied to, again, is going to be uh, quite extreme. And especially when you wrap it up with the mounting and uh, really quite extraordinary cost of living crisis with which workers in the West are being faced and being asked to accept being made worse by this uh, imperialist aggression in Ukraine. And I make no bones about calling it an imperialist aggression, not a Russian aggression, and we'll come to that later. Um, so this psychological operation against workers in the West is being carried out by the coordinated efforts, uh, most particularly of the US and British secret services, but they're acting in concert with Western corporate media. And of course, big tech plays a massive role in that because it's been assiduous in removing voices of dissent, removing evidence of Western crimes, evidence that um, uh, goes against their uh, narrative um, and exposes uh, their own um, hyperbole. Um, Western politicians, Western academia, the Western commentariat in general, they're all singing a remarkably well-rehearsed chorus about Russian aggression, Russian imperialism, Russian barbarity, 
and of course the kind of apparently unknowable and unsurpassable evil and brutality of Russia's dictatorial president, uh, Vladimir Putin. And again, I'll, I'll come back to that a bit later. So I just want to do a little rundown of the most important context that has been disappeared from our media before I get into some of the detail. So we've got the context of NATO's ceaseless drive to war against Russia, not just in the last 10 years or 20 years, but for 75 years. Its rapid expansion up to Russia's borders since 1991 and Ukraine's vital role in imperialist war plans ever since, like, well, actually for 100 years and certainly since World War II. So all that context is not there. So the context of an entire century of imperialist meddling in Ukraine has disappeared from all the discussions about what's going on. The context of Western sponsorship of Nazis against the Soviet Union before, during and after World War II, and then against the Russian Federation after the fall of communism, disappeared. The context of not one but two Westback coups in the post-Soviet era to remove governments that wanted merely to maintain friendly relations and economic cooperation with Russia. The context of the recolonization, and that's what we have to call it, what's happened in Eastern Europe, of a formerly socialist state, the corporate looting of Ukraine's economy, and of course what goes in hand in hand with that, the immiseration of Ukraine's people. The context that both the imperialist uh, coup regimes, imperialist-backed 2004 and 2014, were committed to facilitating Western plunder of the country and were trying to cover this crime and its consequences in the eyes of the people by presenting Russia and Russians as the eternal enemy of Ukrainian people. And the context that in order to present Russia as Ukraine's enemy, Westback forces were being helped and funded by Western secret services to rewrite Ukraine's history, which is something the CIA has been becoming expert in ever since 1945, to rehabilitate World War II Nazi collaborators to scapegoat Russian speakers, to ban the Russian language and create a two-tier ethnic state. This is all a massive effort at, at redirecting and misdirecting the anger of Ukrainian people when they find themselves impoverished uh, and essentially colonised in, in the new Europe. So, of course, the context also of eight years of anti-fascist war that's been waged by people in the eastern Donbass region of Ukraine, people who refused to accept the imposition of the coup government in 2014. And in that war, there have been 14,000 deaths, mainly on the side of the uh, resistance forces, and these deaths have excited almost no interest or comment in the Western media. Then there's the context of a seven-year failed peace process, the Minsk Accords. Those peace process, uh, peace accords were officially guaranteed by France and Germany. Um, but Ukraine's fascists, armed, emboldened uh, by the US, by Britain, by NATO, made it clear they would not allow 
the Minsk to be implemented. And nobody said or did anything about that. There's been no outcry about this injustice uh, or this act of war in our media. There's been no discussion of it at all. Um, the fascists have openly declared that as far as they're concerned, Minsk is just a delaying tactic. It's not to be taken seriously. There'll be no peace. Donbass must be retaken and conquered by force and crushed, essentially. Um, the context that when Volodymyr Zelensky, who is clearly a puppet president of the West, made a small show of going to the border of the liberated areas to sort of talk peace. And remember, his platform for election, there's a lot made about how he's a democratically elected president, but his platform for election was being a Russian speaker, being a centrist, and wanting to make peace. And that's what Ukrainian people wanted. They want peace. They want cooperation and friendliness with Russia. They want peace in the Donbass and in Ukraine. Um, but the Azov sent Zelensky back with a flea in his ear, made it very clear that NATO as well as them were not going to allow the implementation of Minsk. So the context of the complete takeover of Ukraine's economy and government by Western corporations and by spy agencies of the West. I mean, you only have to look at the multiple visits of then Vice President Joe Biden to Ukraine after the 2014 coup, where he was mainly seem to be coming to discuss uh, the running of Ukraine's oil business. Uh, the numerous revelations about his son Hunter Biden and all the financial dealings of just one American family to see that's just the tip of the iceberg of the Western economic looting of the country. Um, and that all of this looting and, and taking over of the state institutions have le has left the country at the mercy of outside forces and has left Russia with no one to talk to about matters of mutual concern, whether that be the you know, trading and economy links or whether that be military concerns. The context of the West trying to sabotage the trading of Russian oil uh, and the ability of Russian oil and gas to pass through Ukrainian territory. And that campaign of sabotage has been ongoing since 2004. The context of the USA using Ukrainian territory for a biological weapons development programme which they tried to deny and then they tried to downplay, um, but is very clear, was a serious threat. There are some, I think, 30 sites run by US military and the US military contractors in Ukraine. Uh, clearly a military biological weapons program on Ukrainian soil, um, outside of Ukrainian or US or anybody else's laws. Uh, the context of the Zelensky regime's repeated assertions that Ukraine planned to join NATO. And let's not forget that NATO basically exists to make war against Russia. <laughs> That's what it's for. Um, and was aiming also to develop its own nuclear weapons programme. Again, could only be aimed at Russian cities, which are just a few minutes flying time from Ukraine. The context of the huge massing of Ukrainian armed forces on the borders of the Donbass which took place in early February, along with a massive escalation of shelling against the Donbass people, both of which indicated that a large-scale operation to retake the region by force, which is what the Azov has always said they were going to do, was about to be launched. Um, and in fact, some commentators have argued that uh, by reason of this uh, onslaught and this um, gathering of forces, it was in fact... Um, 
the West that started the war a week before the Russians launched their operation. Uh, the context that Ukrainian military's escalating artillery bombardment of the Donbass forced President Putin to agree to what had already been repeated requests by the Duma, the Russian state parliament, to recognise the independence of Donetsk and Lugansk, which until that point he hadn't done, because Minsk provided for a forum for discussion and uh, uh, a facilitation of agreement between the autonomous regions and the central government, um, and a, a facility for that situation to be settled peacefully within the context of a confines of a Euro Ukrainian state. Um, so Putin, up until that point, had not recognised them as independent states. The Duma finally was able to push him into it because of the escalation that was going on, because it was clear there was going to be a bloodbath, and the bloodbath was very likely to spill over into Russia itself. It wasn't going to stop on the borders of, of Donetsk, even if they stood by and let it. And the context that on 23rd of February, the two republics then asked for military assistance from Russia, which had signed friendship and assistance treaties with them. So at that point, President Putin invoked Article 51 of the United Nations Charter, which provides for mutual military assistance within the framework of a defensive alliance. And he did that the next day. So this is the context that people don't know, aren't presented with, to make sense of what we're seeing in Ukraine. What we hear is endless accusations of a kind of madman rampaging for no apparent reason across borders into a, you know, peaceful state next door. Uh, and, you know, there's no making sense of it at all, but it's clearly uh, illegal and must be stopped by any means necessary, uh, in particular by funneling huge amounts of armaments into the country. Um, now, I'm going to talk in a bit of detail, and I hope you'll forgive me, because it's something which is so key to understanding Ukraine and which the West routinely either ignores or downplays. And that's the role of fascists in Ukraine and the role of the West in backing those fascists. Um, it's a key piece of context, this role of Nazis in the West's policy in Ukraine for the last 80 years and more. Uh, for example, on 5th of May this year, in the Manchester Evening Guardian of all places, there was an interview with a 98-year-old Ukrainian who lives in north of Manchester, uh, titled, He Fought Stalin, Now This Ukrainian Hero Doesn't Know If His Nephew Has Been Killed in Combat. Dry your eyes. Included in the article, there was a really heart-rending account of uh, the Ukrainian, his name was Ivan Kluka, his fears for his nephew's safety, and the journalist kind of described him as uh, the most remarkable man I've ever met. So, you know, it's a real kind of puff piece for this guy, he's an old war hero, and we're supposed to sort of identify him. Now, of course, we have very fond feelings towards our war heroes from the same generation, because in the eyes of British working people, World War II was an anti-fascist war. What they've not included in this piece is that clearly this guy was a fascist. If he fought Stalin in World War II, what does that mean? That means he was a Nazi. Nice old uncle, good old, good old war veteran. It's totally disappeared from this story, but he must have been an active Nazi collaborator. And he was clearly one of thousands who fought alongside uh, the Nazi leader Stepan Bandera 
as part of the German SS. And in fact, the Ukrainian section of the SS was infamous for being even more brutal than the rest of what was a notoriously psychopathic organisation. Um, you know, Ukraine was on the front lines of World War II. It experienced the full force of Germany's Operation Barbarossa invasion and the full brutality of Nazi occupation during the Second World War. In that seismic conflagration, 27 million Soviet people died defending the socialist motherland and between 8 and 10 million of those were just in the Ukraine. So that is a colossal sacrifice. It's a colossal battlefield. Ukraine's Nazis were a considerable force. Many of them were remnants of the forces that had fought against the Red Army during the Civil War period and the War of Intervention that followed the First World War and the October Revolution. So fanatical anti-Bolshevism uh, has, all, sorry, has always been their guiding ideology, as has anti-Semitism. And pogroms against both revolutionaries, communists, socialists, trade unionists, and against Jews uh, were their stock in trade from 100 years ago up until today. Both civil war leader Simon Petliura and his organisational successor Stepan Bandera from World War II era, who led uh, what's known as the Organisation of Ukrainian Nationalists, the OUN, were rabid anti-Semites whose regimes massacred tens of thousands of Jewish Ukrainians. Both of these figures, since 2014, have been deified in modern Ukraine by the coup regime as fathers of the nation. They're presented in the West as Democrats. Um, now, I'm indebted uh, very much to some detailed articles on the World Socialist website. I won't give you all the caveats about that organ right now, but um, they do some useful work, despite being quite rabid Trotskyites. Um, so from their website, I've got some quite useful information about the background, which has been, you know, it's well, it's well researched. They've, they've brought it together from a number of sources, which is helpful if you're short on time. Uh, but Petliora, his brief anti-communist regime in Kiev back in 1919, was responsible, just in the short time, for the murder of 30,000 Jews. Bandera's SS thugs also led pogroms in Nazi-occupied Ukraine, rounding up and massacring as many Jews as they could find. Documentary evidence relating to the Wehrmacht advance into Ukraine in 1941 reveals that about 140 pogroms were perpetrated by Banderaites in Western Ukraine in just the first few days of Operation Barbarossa. They were very enthusiastic proponents of the Holocaust. Between 13,000 and 35,000 Jews were murdered in the last days of June 1941 alone. Um, and the OUNB's director of propaganda, someone called Stepan Lenkavsky, called for the physical extermination of Ukrainian Jewry. And uh, the troops made up of people like the nice old uncle in, in Glossop uh, enthusiastically complied with that instruction. You know, such was the reputation for viciousness of these Ukrainian SS 
that the Nazis, and this is a quote, used their Ukrainian collaborators to commit murders and acts of brutality that were too disturbing even for the SS units. For example, SS Task Force 4A in Ukraine confined itself to the shooting of adults while commanding its Ukrainian helpers to shoot the children. Now, as we know, or those of you who are familiar with Soviet history and history of World War II will know, um, the Nazi advance in Ukraine was basically a scorched earth policy. Uh, they would wipe out entire villages, set fire to them, kill every person they could find alive, including the children. It's interesting to note, instructive to note, that Ukrainian Nazis were used for the more difficult parts of that work. So while our Western liberal media and politicians are so sensitive to the tiniest hint of linguistic anti-Semitism from anyone who opposes the status quo, the imperialist world order in the West, they're totally uninterested in this real history, this actual performance of the most bloody acts of anti-Semitism carried out in service of their world order. Um, and if you, if you like to paraphrase Marx, I mean, he, uh, he was speaking of the English established church, but uh, paraphrasing him, if I may, the imperialists will more readily pardon an attack on 99 of their 100 high moral precepts than on 100th of their global looting. Genocide itself is culpalavis, that is a minor sin, as compared with a, as compared with a criticism of imperialist financial interests. And you see what their real values are when you look at how they present these facts or don't. So the ultranationalists in Ukraine who happily adopted outright fascist ideology during the rise of the German Third Reich and who have never dropped that ideology continued to be the favoured tool of Western imperialism in trying to subvert and overthrow Soviet power in Ukraine. Not only were they used by British imperialists between the wars and by the German imperialists during World War II, Ukrainian Nazis were again adopted by the USA and Britain at the end of the Second World War. In fact, while the war was still being fought, they were being armed and parachuted back into Ukraine. Um, and sponsored to continue a guerrilla war against the socialist government and people of Ukraine for some years after the war in Europe was officially over. After the defeat at Stalingrad, with Hitler's armies on the retreat, Banderaite forces regrouped in something called the Ukrainian Insurgent Army, that's the UPA, in 1943, and they were armed with German weapons and inspired by a Nazi ideology of creating a pure, pure, ethnically pure Ukrainian state. Uh, that UPA in 43 and 44 organized massacres that claimed the lives of 90,000 Poles and many thousands of Jews not officially counted. It also brutally terrorised, tortured and executed Ukrainian peasants and workers who wanted to be part of the Soviet Union. The UPA went on to kill some 20,000 Ukrainians before their insurre insurrection was finally crushed in 1953. That's with British and American training and arms and facilitation. So, as I said, the British and American secret services were already supplying these opponents, op opponents before the end of World War II, and the ongoing civil war became the CIA's first large-scale project, project to destabilise the Soviet Union. 
So the Manchester Evening News interview has unwittingly highlighted the fact that many members of the defeated UPA were smuggled out of Ukraine to the USA, to West Germany, to Canada, to Britain. And here they were encouraged to keep alive their traditions and bring up the next generation in hopes of a revival of their causes' fortunes. That's why people like Ivan Gluka and his compatriots uh, have founded and retain to this day a thriving Ukrainian club network in Britain. Um, they've been absorbed into the West, but their Nazi affiliations have been whitewashed. Many of them have been integrated into academia, into the media, and facilitated to rewrite their history uh, as democratic freedom fighters. They also helped the West to locate conduits for smuggling anti-Soviet propaganda into Ukraine and other parts of the Soviet Union. So it's not a surprise, and it wasn't very difficult for the West at the fall of the Soviet Union to bring these people physically back to the Ukraine and to support uh, the creation and resurrection of far-right and Nazi groups in the country. They also provided massive funding for the rehabilitation of Nazi war criminals uh, in the country after 1991, in official history, in academia, in school curriculums, in popular culture, and in the media generally. Um, there was a special commission set up in Ukraine in 2000 and another one in 2005, which whitewashed the hit history of Ukrainian Nazis and prepared the ground for a law that gave parity to the war records between members of the Red Army and members of the Banderaite UPA. And that was passed by the West-backed coup government of Viktor Yushchenko after the 2004 so-called Orange Revolution. And it was at the end of 2004, with the um, installation of that coup government, that the fascistic leaders of Svoboda first entered Ukrainian government. Uh, and since then, fascists and fascist sympathisers have been integrated into every part of the Ukrainian state, from the parliament and the government to the media, cultural, cultural institutions and the army. Thousands of militants have trained in the ranks of the Azov Battalion, which is notorious. Um, and although it's claimed that Azov is independent of the state, it acts as a funnel. So people train in the Azov, and then they're funneled into the ranks of the Ukrainian National Army, which is riddled top to bottom with people who've been ideologically as well as militarily trained by Azov. Uh, so in this way, while Azov it's itself is not that big, and the West can sort of airbrush it out and say, well, as a proportion, it's tiny. Fascists are not really a problem in Ukraine. Actually, its influence is huge, uh, and its, its place in the machinery of uh, neo-colonial Ukraine is absolutely central. Uh, a Swedish historian called Per Anders Rudling uh, described the atmosphere in Ukraine back in 2013, so that's nearly 10 years ago now. He said, the hegemonic nationalist narrative is reflected also in academia, where the line between legitimate scholarship and ultra-nationalist propaganda is often blurred, uh, far more so by now. Mainstream bookstores often carry Holocaust denial and anti-Semitic literature, some of which finds its way into the academic mainstream. Well, all of these trends have only been accelerated in the last 10 years since then. And right now, it's clearly the fascists in the driving seat on every front. 
So while the fascists have been able to make significant headway uh, amongst the impoverished Ukrainian speakers in the West, which was their traditional stronghold, uh, and Lviv in particular, um, but also in Kiev, they have had much less impact in the East, uh, which of course is home to most of Ukraine's ethnically Russian population, Russian speakers, and home to the industrial heartlands from the Soviet era, um, whose people of course played such a major role as Red Army fighters and communist partisans in the World War II fight against fascism. Um, so those identifying today as ethnically Russian are depicted by Banderaites as Eastern Mongols. Uh, I mean, it's almost Harry Potter speak, isn't it? Mudbloods. Um, as opposed to Ukrainians in the West, who they claim are pure Europeans. Uh, if anyone knows what that means, you can, you can, t you can enlighten me later. Um, but this fascistic racial profiling is openly stated on their media, um, but it seems to provoke no particular outrage in the allegedly anti-racist and liberal West. Um, if it's brought up at all, it's diminished and downplayed, like it's some kind of just a small fringe element over in the corner. Um, you'll get some nutters everywhere, won't you, type of, uh, type of thing. Um, meanwhile, among other historical events, the leaders of Svoboda and other um, fascistic outfits celebrate the founding of the Galician Division of the SS, which they describe as the pride of our nation. Openly celebrate, legally celebrate, big parades, torchlit parades in the streets type of celebrations. Uh, and they also celebrate the Nazi invasion of Ukraine. That's Operation Barbarossa to you and me. Um, one of their younger party ideologists, I'm not going to try and say his name, from Lviv, founded a right-wing think tank back in 2005 um, that he first named after Joseph Goebbels and later after Ernst Jünger. In his writings, he openly refers to the heroic legacy of fascists, including Bandera, and has described the Holocaust as a bright episode in European civilization. So these are the people that our money goes to fund, and our media gives propaganda support to uh, and cover for. Uh, and then we come to the Euromaidan in 2014. Um, that coup, as in 20, uh, 2004, was organised primarily by the CIA and carried out in order to replace, again, for the second time, a government of Viktor Yanukovych, Yanukovych sorry, who, again had been elected on a platform of retaining friendly economic and political relations with both East and West. That's what Ukraine, Ukrainians, Ukraine's people had wanted and voted for consistently when they got the chance. His government refused at the last minute um, to sign what was quite a humiliating and punitive trade deal and loan agreement with the European Union and the IMF. And for this declaration of independence, he was forced from office and into exile at the point of a gun. Ukraine's parliament was sacked. The violent protesters occupied Ukraine's street, led by the fascist elements. West-trained snipers shot policemen and passers-by, and riotous thugs were given the Western PR treatment and also cookies. 
Everyone remember that? When Victoria Newland was going around the Maidan, dishing out cookies to the thugs who were camped out there. Um, so Western media and politicians branded them as pro-democracy protesters. Um, and we, were, we, you know, we, had, we had even the Trotskyites over here prettifying them as people's councils and you know, d diminishing the role that the fascists were playing in their ranks. And the result of all that was the installation of a government of kleptocratic stooges to facilitate the West's total takeover of Ukraine's economy and subordinate it completely to their economic, political and military interests. So in the wake of that coup, several things happened. In Crimea, where not only was there a large uh, anti-fascist population, but there was a Russian military base, which meant that the Azov thugs could not run rampant in the streets, the people decided to hold a referendum. And because of the presence of Russian troops, they were able to do so in peace. And in that referendum, they voted overwhelmingly, hugely overwhelmingly, to return to Russia. Uh, and there was nothing that uh, the Ukrainian junta or the fascist thugs could do about it. And uh, the West has been gnashing its teeth ever since because, because, of course, one of their targets in getting hold of Ukraine was to get hold of the port in Crimea, and they lost it. Um, similarly, in the East, there, were, there was uproar because one of the first things the coup government did was to pass a law banning the Russian language. It made it very clear what was going to be you know, the, the trajectory of the new government. Um, it was not just rotten with fascists on the ground level, but you know, it was being guided by their programme on a higher level. Um, so all over the East, the people were up in arms. And in Donetsk and Lugansk in particular, referendums were held. Uh, people in those areas voted, so those are in the Donbass eastern region, voted for autonomy within Ukraine, uh, and in particular for the guarantee of the right to use the Russian language. Uh, which had been abolished, as I said, by the coup government. Um, in Odessa and Mariupol, there were massacres uh, by the fascists, which really forced the people there to capitulate to the coup. And their towns were then occupied by the Banderaite thugs, uh, who terrorised the local population and used their cities as a base from which to attack the newly formed autonomous regions. That was the beginning of what we have always recognised to be an anti-fascist, anti-coup defensive war by the people in the Donbass. It's been being waged for eight years, but it has been disappeared from the Western media. There have been no fundraisers, no ribbons for the refugees, for the widows and the orphans. There certainly have been no demands to arm, arm, arm the Donbass. I don't know how many of you saw on social media recently, there was a I mean, I can't call it an anti-war demonstration. It claimed to be one uh, in London recently, where people on that demonstration were chanting, arm, arm, arm Ukraine. <laughs> Genuinely. But we didn't see any of those calls to arm the Donbass eight years ago or during any of the intervening period. Um, on the Ukrainian side... The people fighting most enthusiastically have been the fascist paramilitaries um, who have an ideological uh, hatred towards Russian speakers and see it as their job to kind of cleanse them from Ukraine. Um, on the other hand, thousands of conscripted Ukrainians, 
have deserted. The war is not popular amongst ordinary working people. They'd rather leave the country or switch sides than be part of it. Many of them have switched side and joined the Donbass resistance and they've taken their arms and equipment with them. There was a very interesting article by a Swiss military commentator called Jacques Beau recently and his imperialist training and credentials are absolutely impeccable. So it's worthwhile if you haven't already reading his article and his evaluation of what's happening. Um, I'm going to quote a very small portion of his article. He said, according to a British Home Office report, again, this is not according to me, in the March-April 2014 recall of reservists, i.e. this is when they were just starting to kick off their aggression against the East, 70% did not show up for the first session, 80% did not show up for the second, 90% did not show up for the third, 95% did not show up for the fourth. And by the autumn of 2017, 70% of conscripts were not showing up for the recall campaign. This is not counting suicides and desertions, often over to the autonomists. So that's people show up for the recall, then they get deployed and they either commit suicide or or switch sides, which reached up to 30% of the workforce in the Donbass area. Young Ukrainians refused to go and fight in the the Donbass and preferred emigration, which also explains, at least partially, the demographic deficit of the country. Of course, the other reason is just the general economic immiseration of the people, which we've seen all over Eastern Europe as it's been recolonised and looted. Uh, The young people become a mobile workforce um, and sent off to the West to try and earn money and maintain their families back home. Um, But... In Ukraine, a significant factor appears to have been the war in the East and the fact that if you stay, you're going to be conscripted into the army. And it's not popular. Um, So as a result of all this, in 2020, according to Jacques Beau, not according to me, paramilitaries made up 40% of the Ukrainian armed forces. That's 102,000 men who had been armed, trained and financed by, guess who? The USA, Britain. Canada, France. They included in their ranks large numbers of foreign fighters. Where have we seen that before? Thugs and mercenaries from at least 19 different countries. So the integration of fascists into the Ukrainian state machine and into the armed forces has been facilitated and accelerated since the 2014 coup while fascist paramilitaries like the Azov have been used to train not only Ukrainian Nazis, but also fascist thugs from all over Europe and North America. This is just how ISIS were used in the Middle East, and the repercussions are likely to be felt across Europe and America for decades to come. Be in no doubt. Ukraine has been used uh, almost the way Libya was used, as as a kind of free playground for the CIA, to train all kinds of, you know, brainwashed and thuggish elements that it could get hold of uh, from all over the world and send them back again. So fascists have been backed, they've been armed, they've been trained, they've been given propaganda cover in Ukraine by the imperialist powers since well before World War II, first as a tool against the USSR and more recently as a tool against capitalist Russia. And I've talked before against why capitalist Russia is a target 
uh, for the imperialists. I'm not going to go into that extensively today, but you know, its size, its resources, and its military capability make its aim of economic independence a huge threat to the imperialist West and to US hegemony in particular. And I refer you to previous talks of mine on that topic and to my little, little pamphlet on the drive to war if you want to know a bit more about that. But this policy has never materially changed. The imperialists still want to weaken and, if possible, balkanise and destroy Russia. They still want to loot Ukraine and use it as a tool in their war against Russia. And they continue to make full use of their Nazi allies in Ukraine for all these purposes. You know, the Nazis we see in Ukraine today didn't pop up spontaneously of their own accord. They're not a fringe group. They didn't arrive suddenly in 2014. They've been a continuous force over and underground in the country, many in exile in the West during the Cold War, and they've owed their existence throughout to foreign backers who've helped them to stir up racial hatred and to convince a sizable section of Ukraine's population in the West, at least, that Russia and the Russian people are their enemy and that their problems will be solved if a West-aligned and pure Ukraine could be created, cleansed of the presence of polluting Russians. So Western media has, to some extent, been forced to recognise that Russia has plenty of good reasons for the special operation in Ukraine. And the longer it goes on, the more some of these arguments start to kind of make their way in around the edges. And so uh, they've made a pretense at addressing them. But really, they address them only to downplay them and to skim over the realities. Um, so they'll say something like, oh, yes, the Minsk peace accords were violated by both sides. Um, and fascists are a fringe element. They're not a, they're not a meaningful threat. Um, they really try to make a lot of the fact that <clears throat> sorry, Vladimir Zelensky uh, is Jewish uh, and that he has Russian-speaking origins <clears throat> to prove that there's no anti-Russian crusade and no anti-Semitism problem in Ukraine. Um, none of them has reported meaningfully on Zelensky's past career as an actor who played the part of a president on screen for years before he was put up as a candidate. Um, they haven't really meaningfully talked about his backing by a pro-Western oligarch or the way his campaign promises to make peace with the anti-fascist forces of the Donbass came to nothing when Azov sent him away from the war zone with a flea in his ear. Nor have they addressed the question of how a comedian slash actor turned president who claims to want to reign in the oligarchs and address corruption, insists that he lives off his presidential salary and is just a humble man, has somehow amassed an offshore fortune of many, many millions of dollars, um, some of which have been revealed in the Pandora Papers. And the, the claims about how big that fortune is are many and various, so I'm not going to try and put a figure on it, but it looks like it's pretty sizable. And the West definitely doesn't want to talk about that. Um, what they have done... Well, I'll probably come to that later, but um, they've done everything they can to portray him as a Democrat, as anti-corruption, as a man of the people, um, when in fact, up until the launching of this war, his popularity had plummeted down to about 20%, precisely because the platform he was elected on, he had failed to deliver on every single front. Corruption still rampant, oligarchs, oligarchs in the West still in control, peace not just not nearer, but further than ever away. 
Um, so I'm going to come quickly to the ground war. <clears throat> Obviously, I'm not a mil military expert or commentator. I have to rely, like everybody here, on the observations of those people who are specialists. Um, and those specialists who have at great personal cost taken on the Western propaganda narrative and given us the benefit of their skills and knowledge in interpreting the information that's available online. And the great thing about the internet is that despite the control of the major platforms and therefore most people's view of the world uh, online by big tech and by the West, if you want to find other information and you know how to look for it, you can. Of course, there's all kinds of fake other information put up there to, to confuse those who are new at trying to find information. Um, and conspiracy theories abound. But <clears throat> once you get a handle on how to search uh, for stuff and once you start to find a few reliable voices, you can get lots of good information. And of course, you know, Russian people, Chinese people, people all over the world have sources of information which are much better than uh, the, the Western ones, and they're available to us, and many of them are translated into English. Um, so I'm relying on other people's expertise. Clearly, I have no military knowledge. Uh, but one thing is very clear, and that is Western arms dealers are making a killing. Uh, they're raking in billions in what is really one more giant taxpayer-funded subsidy by Western governments to monopoly corporations, being affected in front of our eyes with this big PR cover of saving Ukraine, um, even at the same time as we're being told to tighten our belts and expect massive increases to our cost of living. Um, there's no accounting, there's no accountability for where the money is going or where the weapons end up. Um, billions are being handed over, um, and yet the military war is clearly failing. And even yesterday in the FT, uh, Boris Johnson admitted that Russia might win the war, which is the first time a Western leader said that. And instantly all the other Western leaders went, no, 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 ridiculous. Um, but they're having to admit it in face of facts. Um, much of the equipment that's sent to Ukraine is destroyed or captured as soon as it arrives. So besides lining the pockets of uh, various arms corporations, it does nothing at all. Some of it ends up in the hangs of gangsters because, of course, it's totally lawless in most of Ukraine. The government's given up, as of rule, the streets. And um, anybody who wants to get hold of a gun can. And who are the people who want to get hold of guns in that situation? People with you know, dodgy scores to settle. So there are plenty of people like that who are being empowered by the dishing out, uh, indiscriminate dishing out of arms irresponsible and indiscriminate dishing out of arms in Ukraine. Again, something that's likely to come back to haunt much of Europe in, in uh, future decades. Um, the part of what actually makes it to the battlefield, uh, according to commentator Scott Ritter, who again has impeccable credentials and knows what he's talking about, is being expended extremely quickly. Uh, and very often, that's not just because, uh, well, according to Scott Ritter anyway, it's not just because of the demands of the battlefield, which, you know, demand plenty of ammunition, but also because uh, the people handling the weaponry and the ammunition are relatively untrained on the Ukrainian side, not particularly disciplined, haven't had lots of training, don't really know how to make best use of the equipment they're being given. So they're wasting it, is essentially what he says. Um, on, the, on the flip side, Russia has plenty of reserves, 
but NATO's funnel of equipment and ammunition to Ukraine looks to be somewhat limited at present rates of expenditure. And there's been lots of talk already about how our stocks are running low. And if we send them any more, it's, it's the stuff that we're supposed to need for our own defence. And how do we replace that very quickly? You know, they're not... The, for all the West, you know, would have liked a, a kind of quick campaign against Russia, they're not really, it doesn't seem, set up to continue to provide the level of armaments required to keep it going. And particularly when... Russian military dominance means most of what arrives in the country is instantly captured or destroyed. Um, so on 24th of February, President Putin gave a speech where he set out two main objectives for the Russian operation. One was demilitarization of Ukraine, which obviously we know has been absolutely filled with weapons in the last 10 years. And one was the denazification of Ukraine. And I've explained why that one's necessary. Um, while we can't know the military details of Russia's plans, um, the rational commentators have been able to draw conclusions from the events as they unfold. Um, according to them, demilitarization has been approached by uh, destroying Ukraine's aviation, air defense systems, and reconnaissance assets, by neutralizing command and intelligence structures, uh, and taking out main logistics routes, and by gradually creating a cauldron around the bulk of the Ukrainian army, which is massed in the south, southeast of the country. So this is an old Soviet tactic that we know well. We'll remember it particularly from Stalingrad. Um, and it seems to be being deployed very successfully by the Russians in Ukraine. The denazification is being carried out by the destruction and neutralization of volunteer battalions operating in the cities, particularly of Odessa, Kharkov and Mariupol, and by the simple expedient, we, I'm sure lots of you here have seen the videos and photographs, of checking captured soldiers for tattoos, because the fascists seem to be unable to do without them. Every one of them is covered from neck to waistband in fascist insignia. So it's really easy when you've got people surrendering to you and claiming to be civilians or just normal conscripted soldiers to say, lift up your shirt, please. And they find, I mean, you know, they weren't really thinking ahead, those guys, were they? Not the brightest, let's put it that way. Um, you know, you think about, you know, the, the, the kind of communist guerrilla, you think about a real guerrilla warfare and how absolutely opposite it is to that, how the communist, you know, Mao talked about the communists disappearing amongst the population like the fish in the sea. You know, and they're supported and helped by the population and taken care of and they look like them and they mix in with them and you can't tell who's who. And it's an absolute you know, bugger for the, for the opposition to find them. It's exactly the opposite in Ukraine. You get your hands on a fascist, you know you did. And they, you know, there's lots and lots of... I mean, it's quite good fun if you've, got, if you've got time for it to sit through some of the videos that get posted up by uh, the Russian army and such of... Um, uh, surrendering or recanting, you know, Ukrainian fascists sort of groveling and apologising and saying, oh, I didn't mean it, I didn't know, <laughs> covered, showing their tattoos, and, you know, I didn't know what I was doing, I didn't know what it meant. Well, there, I saw one of a guy being asked, what's the pin on your phone? It's 1844, what does that, no, 1488, what does that mean? And he's kind of pretending he does, oh, I was young when I did it. I got and then the guy tells him what it means, and it's to do with Heil Hitler and pure Ukraine and what all these numbers signify, and he's covered in tattoos and... You know, you know, they're, they're wretched people. Uh, but, you know, denazification is going on, let's put it that way. Um, now, rather than take Kiev and occupy the whole country, 
It seems, and the commentators I've been looking at believe, that the Russians are trying to force the Zelensky government to meaningful negotiation, or perhaps to prove, prove without a shadow of a doubt in everybody's eyes, that such meaningful negotiation will never take place because it will never be allowed. Um, and certainly that latter is indicated uh, by Zelensky's kind of posturing, by the bad faith in which he's clearly gone into every negotiation so far, and also by the assassination, open and again unremarked in the Western media, of negotiators who were on the Ukrainian side but thought to be a bit too friendly towards Russia, a bit too open to the idea of a compromise. Two or three negotiators I've read about have been assassinated after performing in a, what, the, what the fascists consider to be too servile, i.e. negotiating way in negotiations. So whether it's that they hope to get Zelensky to talk meaningfully or whether it's that they hope to be able to prove that that isn't possible or maybe they're open to either one, um, clearly um, the Russians are not at this point trying to occupy and take the whole country. They haven't tried to take Kiev. They haven't tried to take out all the country's infrastructure. Um, but they have very carefully isolated the military as far as possible from the population. Um, and Jacques Baud, the Swiss commentator I talked about earlier, uh, says the Russian forces are slowly tightening the noose around the southern cauldron. But they're no longer under time pressure in that operation. Their demilitarization goal is all but achieved, and the remaining Ukrainian forces no longer have an operational or strategic command structure. So what's not happening in Ukraine is a NATO-style blitzkrieg to destroy the country's cities and its infrastructure, to terrorise its people. Quite clearly, Russia is at pains to spare life on both sides, Ukrainian life, but also its own soldiers. I mean, they're taking losses that they wouldn't take if they just conducted a, a NATO-style air war, but clearly they want to minimise those. They're acting methodically and carefully in accordance with that principle. And then we come to the economic war. And again, I'm not going to go very deeply into that subject, but suffice it to say that the trade war has really failed. You know, the imperialists hoped that through the application of hundreds of sanctions aimed at stymieing every notable Russian figure and every reachable economic activity, the Russian e economy would just collapse and the Russian people would rise up as one against their government. Of course, one way they've shot themselves in the foot is they've been gearing up towards this all-out trade war for a decade and more. They started putting sanctions uh, on Russia in 2014 after the Crimean referendum which they blamed on, they called a Russian invasion and Russian theft and Russian this, that and the other. And, you know, their hyperbole against Russia really kind of stems back to this date when Russia showed beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was going to stick to its independence goals. Um, and the Russians have had 10 years to get used to what sanctions mean, to re-diversifying some aspects of their economy, to looking to the East to other partners, to other alternatives to the West-controlled financial system, West-controlled banking system, the West-controlled avenues of trade, etc., etc. Uh, Russian people have suffered a lot in that period. Um, but the latest raft of sanctions, which was supposed to be the clincher and topple the economy, 
therefore didn't have the expected effect. Uh, in fact, you've seen the opposite. You've seen an acceleration of what was already happening slowly. So slowly, Russia was making strong economic, military, political ties with China. It already had strong links with India. Both of those uh, allies have stood firm. The alliance with China has suddenly gone a lot stronger, moved to another level. So other markets are available to the East, and particularly because of China's uh, creation of an alternative financial system, other mechanisms for conducting trade are available to Russia. And since they, the Russians uh, announced that they would uh, insist on ruble payment for their oil and gas, uh, the ruble has rallied and is now stronger than it was before the operation was launched. So the people are standing firm. They haven't abandoned their government. They haven't risen up as one. In fact, the people seem more worried that the government might compromise too quickly than that the operation should have been conducted in the first place. And of course, it's not that surprising when you think that they've been watching the war in Donbass on their TVs, in their newspapers for eight years. Many of them will have relations with the people there, will consider it to be, you know, uh, a, a friendly uh, country, a brother nation, as Putin said, and which under Soviet times it was always, you, you know, seen as, as the closest of fraternal ties linking the people in Ukraine to the people in Russia. Um, they're all too aware of the role of the West in creating and backing the militarised Nazi menace on Ukrainian soil, and they're in no doubt that all of that is aimed ultimately at them. Um, so then we come to the psychological war. And um, it's interesting to note that Ukraine, the Ukrainian army's media brigade is in fact its biggest and most well-organised section, and that that is wholly under the direction of the CIA. So the imperialists are making full use of their dominance and control of cyberspace in particular, uh, and of their expertise in finessing a propaganda war, you know, which they've been working on again for years. I mean, in particular in Syria, with the white helmets, we saw this finessing of the machinery where, you know, kind of media-friendly sound bites and videos are kind of created and, and dished out to corporate media and, and social media platforms in the West and just, you know, given uncritical airtime and platform and accepted immediately by all Western leaders as, you know, gospel truth. Um, just one example of how the media space is being manipulated, the Azov Battalion, which used to be labelled and recognised as fascist all over the West, including on social media platforms, and was previously subject to social media censorship of some kind, posts that glorified it were supposed to be removed. Um, on 24th of February, Facebook changed that policy and allowed posts favourable to the Azov militia. And within a week... Facebook had also authorised calls for the murder of Russian soldiers and leaders on its platform in Eastern European countries. So again, we see the democratic, peace-loving values of our leaders on display. Um, meanwhile, our media sort of paints, you know, in concert with the security services who give them their little nicely finessed sound bites, everything in English and, or, or nicely subtitled or packaged up, 
Um, our media paints this wishful portrait of a popular resistance movement led by an incorruptible hero. Um, don't laugh, that's Zelensky. Um, and Netflix has aired in the West the TV programme in which Zelensky played the part of, guess what, an incorruptible man of humble origin shot into the presidency on the back of popular support via social media. Uh, literally, that's the storyline of the programme that made Zelensky famous in Ukraine. Um, and it's now being aired in the West as like, let's all see what a lovely guy he is. Um, the problem, of course, for the West is that their dominance is not as total as it used to be. And their populations are not as credulous as they once were. Since Iraq in particular in 2003, the cynicism of Western workers has grown. It's grown year on year. It's grown revelation on revelation. And it's been exacerbated by every fresh exposure of the inner workings of bourgeois democracy, whether that's you know, corruption, the Pandora Papers, it's Brexit, you know, the three-and-a-half-year sit-in we saw of our parliamentarians to stop the implementation of what the people voted for. Um, or it's the lie machine that propels us into war after war after war and is regularly exposed, um, you know, a little bit down the line. So despite the hysterical outpourings, the outraged allegations and the kind of unanimous voice of the commentariat and the politicians and the media voices uh, about war crimes and atrocities, many workers on the street in, in, in Europe and certainly in this country are losing interest and expressing scepticism towards this narrative. Um, and meanwhile, for those who care to pay any attention, the atrocities themselves all have been debunked by serious observers within days and sometimes even within hours of their being broadcast as incontrovertible facts. So it's only really those who still trust in the media and the political class, whose trust has not yet been broken, i.e. a relatively privileged section uh, of the working class, um, people who don't care to look for alternative sources of information, who are still buying into this narrative without question. Of course, it's a section of the population which is loud, and which occupies all the important positions in the media and, in, and elsewhere, in our schools, in our hospitals, in our state functions. Uh, but there's no reason to suppose that they speak for all or even most people in Britain or other Western countries. And you find that if you actually take the trouble to go and you know, knock on the doors in working class communities and ask them what they think about what's happening. Um, they might not be loud, they might not be speaking up, they might not be mobilised angrily against it at this point. But uh, I think it, it is correct to say that they're not lapping it all up in the way that our rulers would like them to be. Um, they're not... And our media certainly don't speak for the people of the world, many of whom side unequivocally with Russia and have a much better understanding of the context and the realities of what's going on. So Western media carefully hide from our view the fact that it's the Russians who are trying to avoid civilian casualties and it's the Ukrainians who are using civilian areas and the civilian population as a shield, holding people hostage, refusing to let them leave uh, in order to try to deter Russian forces from attacking their positions. Uh, the Ukrainian 
military and militias have no qualms about using hospitals, schools, kindergartens, etc., as their bases. Uh, and the evidence of that is being collected on a daily basis by the Russians and the Donbass fighters. Uh, and it will all be exposed soon enough. Uh, right now, the narrative that's being spun to us in the Western media is exactly the opposite, uh, but it will be exposed soon, soon enough. Um, I mean, you know, even the fascists who are hunkering in the t tunnels under the Azov steelworks in Mariupol, at the port there, have been presented as, you know, a group of panicking women and children uh, in the Western media. And it looks as if they may well have taken some women and children hostage in order to fuel that narrative. But the reality is any women and children who are there are hostages of the fascists who were given many opportunities to surrender. They have not. They have not been allowed to by their leaders uh, or by their president. They have been told to stay and fight to the death. That is what's going to happen. Um, but it's on their heads. The blood of any innocents who are held down there is on the heads of the Ukrainian government and their Western backers and their fascist stooges not on the heads of the Russians, who've done everything they can to evacuate civilians from every area where they've been fighting. Uh, I just quickly want to touch on this myth of Putin, the evil dictator, uh, which is perpetrated by the West against all the evidence, uh, and is just one more strand of the bourgeois approach to history, really, which, you know, when they remove all the context of economics and class politics, you're basically left with this assertion that history is made by men, and in particular by madmen, um, and that only by understanding the minds of the crazed individuals will you understand history. And, you know, we're familiar with this from World War II, aren't we? This idea that if history, if, if Adolf Hitler had been better at art or less of a vegetarian or whatever, taller or, you know, had a better moustache, you know, <laughs> World War II wouldn't have happened or, you know, the whole of the 20th century would have been different. Made someone laugh there. Um, and this is carried to a really kind of obscene, I think, uh, extent. You know, just to cite one example, I mean, there's oodles of this stuff, but the US-based prestigious journal Psychology Today, right, that's the mouthpiece of the psychology profession in the United States of America, has carried in recent months 10 articles with titles like, What Will Vladimir Putin Do Next? And What's Putin's, what Putin's Psychological State Tells Us? And Putin and the power of disobedience. And what can personality pro profiles of President Putin tell us? Right? And they're all aimed at perpetuating this myth that the situation in Ukraine is not the result of all the things I've been talking to you about today, but the result of dysregulation in the mind of Russia's president, uh, who is alleged to be, and I quote, in a state of hypervigilance in which his prefrontal cortex functions are limited and his ability to reason is replaced by anger and fear. So they're basically saying he's a panicking child uh, who just happens to have all this power over so many people. He can just like rampage the world and not listen to reason. And everybody somehow is, it's, he's able to do it. There's nobody who can stop him. Um, you know, it can be hard for the average person to understand why it should be that our media should tell so many barefaced lies. But when we understand that the bastions of our so-called free press are not free at all, that they serve big capital, that's imperialist monopoly, uh, and that big capital's interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of working people, then we can start to understand why they should be lying to us on such a grand scale. 
um, and stop feeling, you know, like the person in the psychology journal, like, you know, you must be mad because are you the only one who feels like you're being gaslighted? Um, I'm aware that I've been talking for quite a long time. There's a few things I want to touch on, but I'll, I'll do it fairly briefly. Uh, there's articles on all these things on our party website if you want to look into them more. Um, but there's some interesting uh, twists in the narrative recently, and uh, they show, I think, a, a sign really of desperation on the part of the West to try to win the psychological war since they're losing the trade war and the military war. Um, and even their hold on the minds of the people is not as strong as it ought to be. Um, so one of these is accusing Russia of war crimes. Now, what's really interesting about the way they've done this is they've made it very clear after 30 years of looking the other way and whistling and acting like they didn't know that there was such a thing as international law and that there was such a thing as an internationally recognised definition of a war crime, they've admitted they do know it and they knew it all along. They've admitted that the basis of international law is not Tony Blair's rules-based order, but the Nuremberg Tribunals and the Geneva Conventions. And that it was at Nuremberg that the precedent was set of what the ultimate crime against humanity is. It's aggressive war. Uh, and that leaders can be held accountable for such a crime. Well, they're trying to argue that this should be a charge levelled at President Putin and trying desperately to work out where is the forum that could put him on trial. Of course, no such forum exists and is not going to exist. But the fact that they're making this argument to me is a sign of great weakness on their part because having admitted the precedent, having reminded people about Nuremberg... Now, I have to say... We, people like us, were trying to remind British working people and the trade union movement and the media establishment about Nuremberg and the principles established at Nuremberg back in 2003 and 2004 with the war in Iraq. And we were laughed out of the room. We were shut down everywhere we went at Stop the War, at um, trade union conferences. I took resolutions personally to Bektu, which was a, one of the unions of the BBC, to their national conference arguing about the president of Nuremberg and how editors of newspapers, journalists, were found complicit in propagating for an illegal war and therefore were guilty of war crimes at Nuremberg and were executed for that crime. And that therefore our trade unions should be arguing a position of non-cooperation with the imperialist war propaganda as well as with the war generally. Um, and we were laughed out of the room and we were pushed off the platform and we were not allowed to make our arguments we went back successive year after year trying to make those arguments and they used all sorts of manoeuvres to close us down. So it's very interesting now to see the bourgeoisie itself recognising there's such a thing as international law, which throughout the last 30 years of their illegal, aggressive warmongering, they haven't recognised. But I think it's going to come back to bite them. They're going to regret the day that they reminded people about these precedents, about these laws, because they are the ones who've been violating them. Number one, they won't find a way to put Vladimir Putin on trial. They won't convince people, I don't think, for an extended period of time that he is the one who should be on trial, although they're trying to drum up this hysteria right now. But the seeds are being sown for people to remember that there is such a thing and that our governments are guilty of perpetrating it. Certainly it's making the job of communists and socialists much easier 
when we next want to go and talk to them about Nuremberg, that the FT has been talking about it. Um, and again, in the same vein, they've been accusing Russia of imperialism, quite mainstream outfits, which used to never use the word, certainly never exist, they would never admit there's such a thing as imperialism. I mean, I can remember, again, back in 1990, with the uh, war against, the first war against Iraq, being a young, fresh-faced student, given a, a bunch of locales to sell on a demonstration uh, at Christmas time or New Year 1991, as the war was kicking off. And the, the, the title said something about, you know, an imperialist aggression against Iraq. And every Trotskyist in the place to, to made a beeline for me to have a go. There's no such thing as imperialism and what you're talking about. Well, what's been really interesting is how um, over the last 30 years, because of the consistent aggressions of uh, British imperialism, NATO imperialism, and because of our refusal to backtrack from the analysis that this is imperialist war. Stop the war and all the trots have taken up the word imperialism, but they've denuded it of all content and made it sort of look like it just means like being a bit mean abroad. <laughs> um, but the mainstream have consistently, you know, refused to use the word or admit that there's such a thing. Now they are doing it. Even made that, I saw a headline that was on Sky News website talking about Russian imperialism as it goes into the second stage of their operation. Again, I think in the words of Chairman Mao, they're lifting up a rock to drop it on their own feet. They're admitting there's such a thing. It makes it much easier for people like us to go and talk to people and explain what imperialism really is. Because the word is no longer a taboo, no longer the, 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 the kind of preserve of people who are presented as being sort of beyond the pale and out on the fringe. It's right back into the mainstream. They're trying to use it as a weapon against Russia. It's not going to work. Um, if people want, I can give you a quick rundown of what it means to be an imperialist country. You want that? Just quickly. So imperialism is not a, a kind of mean foreign policy. Imperialism is a world economic system of monopoly capitalism. And it was very scientifically investigated and explained by Lenin more than 100 years ago. And everybody who wants to understand that should read Lenin's book. It's easy to read. It's a, it's a gripping read. It makes sense of the world like nothing else will. And uh, you will never see, you'll never see the world around you again once you've read it. Um, and it could have been written yesterday. You know, it might be 100 years old, but when you read it, you recognise the world he's talking about. So anyone who tries to tell you Marxism was written by a bunch of dead white guys and therefore kind of no, no longer relevant to today's modern world is talking absolute nonsense. And they're trying to keep you away from the knowledge that you need to take humanity forwards. Um, so Lenin had five criteria for a, a country to be considered imperialist, which again, let me remind you, means monopoly capitalist. Uh, and they are the concentration of production and capital uh, has developed to such a high stage that it has created monopolies which play the decisive role in economic life. Um, now, when we look around us, we see monopolies dominating every aspect of our lives. Russian monopolies are not amongst them. Uh, the second criteria is the merging of bank capital with industrial capital and the creation on the basis of what he called finance capital of a financial oligarchy, what we know as the banksters, <laughs> certainly since 2008. Yes, that we know, we know 
the financiers are the ones who are really making all the decisions behind the scenes, and they, they control vast piles of capital, which you know, dictate the economic life of you know, almost everything in the world. Um, now, when we look at Russia, we see that its richest capitalists are involved uh, predominantly in industry, not finance. Only one of the world's top 100 banks is Russian, and that's a state-owned bank, the Spare Bank. Uh, the third criteria is the export of capital, as distinguished from the export of commodities, acquires exceptional importance. <clears throat> so our finance capitalists, you know, Britain still, despite being a tiny little country with a tiny little population, is still one of the largest economies in the world. What does that mean? It means Britain is home to one of the biggest stocks of finance capital, which goes out into the world, sets up productive facilities, exploits labour, super-exploits labour, and brings back the profits to Britain, funnelled, laundered through the city of London, uh, which distorts our economy and keeps us in the richest section of the world's population. Uh, Russia's biggest exports, on the other hand, are raw materials, not capital. Where are the Russian finance capital trusts and monopolies exploiting the labour of the world and repatriating their wealth to Russia? You can't point to them. Uh, the fourth criteria is the formation of international monopolist capitalist associations which share the world amongst themselves. And of course, those cartels do exist, but they don't include Russian monopolies in the, in the carving up of the world's markets. And finally, the territorial division of the whole world amongst the biggest capitalist powers is completed, says Lenin. And yes, such a division has indeed taken place. Russia was not a party to that division, does not reap the spoils of imperialist domination and war. Indeed, its main crime is to come to the defence of those who are fighting off imperialist attack, like Syria, like in eastern Ukraine, and to try to keep its own territory free of imperialist domination and super-exploitation. It's not a socialist country. That doesn't make it imperialist. It's a big country. That doesn't make it imperialist. We have to be very careful about understanding. That's why I really recommend everybody to read Lenin's book and try to understand what it's telling us because a lot of people, not only in the, in the bourgeois media, but people who call themselves socialists and communists but who gave up studying Marxism a long time ago have branded the operation in Ukraine that's taking place right now as Russian aggression, Russian imperialism, uh, they've, they've likened the situation to World War I, in which workers uh, have uh, no side. They're both as bad as each other, and we should be on the side of the workers. And on that basis, offer their solidarity to Ukrainian workers in the most um, unthought-out way, very often means making themselves tools of outfits which are basically propaganda fronts for imperialism in Ukraine. Um, and certainly they're doing a very good job in, from the left, demobilising the anti-war sentiment of many workers all over the world. Many, many workers are being misled by these charlatans who claim to be Marxists and who describe Russia as an imperialist power who just wants to go into Ukraine to control its markets and blah, blah, blah. This is not the case. And we have to be clear about that. And we ourselves, the communists in Britain, CPGBML, have come under attack by these revisionist out outfits uh, in their uh, media for the position we've taken. Um, so be aware 
that this argument is not just in the, in the bourgeois and the liberal left, it's circulating amongst um, you know, progressive workers also and being used to do great harm, in fact, to the understanding and the ability to mobilise progressive-minded workers. And then we come to trade unions, and we've seen this in Britain, calling on their members to refuse to cooperate with the Russian economy. So this is really interesting, isn't it? Because for years and years and years, people like us have been demanding that the unions take a position of non-cooperation with imperialist war. And they've refused. They've looked the other way. They have either ignored us, argued with us, or occasionally even agreed with us, but then shelved the resolutions. What they've been very careful to do is avoid connecting our argument with the masses. Avoid letting the people know that they have power to stop imperialist wars. Uh, and their power is to refuse to cooperate economically, to refuse to help to move or make material or war uh, uh, um, equipment or to move soldiers or, or help in, with any of the logistics or to help with putting out the media, the propaganda that covers for the war. Um, we've been arguing for this for, you know, nearly 20 years. We've been ignored. Suddenly, when the bourgeoisie announces that Russia is imperialist, our trade union leaders are calling on their workers not to cooperate with Russia's aggressive war. You, you sort of feel like you couldn't make it up. But on the plus side, once again, I think they'll find in the long run, they've lifted a rock to drop it on their own feet. Because, of course, non-cooperation should be called for. And workers have been denied the knowledge that non-cooperation is their strategy against aggressive imperialist war. Um, and bringing it back to them, reminding them, is going to make our job in the future easier when we once again call on them not to cooperate. So um, since it's NATO that's aggressing and Russia that's defending, it is in fact not the Russian war machine we should be boycotting, but the war machine of the NATO aggressors. And we're actually quite grateful to trade union leaders like Unite Sharon Graham for recognising the principle of working-class anti-war action through non-cooperation. Our job is to explain to British workers that their power should be used against their own and not against Russia's ruling class in this particular conflict. And I think the anger of the people when they realise the extent to which they've been lied to, as I said earlier, when we combine it with what Ranjit's going to talk to us about later, the cost of living crisis and the rapid uh, impoverishment of workers in the West uh, is going to create quite a force, quite a ferment and uh, fertile ground for us to bring these very important messages to our own working class. Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. We aim to bring you the best Marxist analysis on current affairs, revolutionary history, and theory. Do like, comment, subscribe, and share our content to help us reach the widest possible audience. We are a small organization with limited resources, and we need workers' support if we are to grow and fulfill our mission. If you are able to make a one-off or regular donation, no matter how small, please visit our website at thecommunists.org 
and register as a supporter.